This is John Quinn, and this is Law Disrupted. About 200 Chinese companies are publicly listed in the United States. And until very recently, until actually yesterday, August 26, 2022, those companies all face the prospect of being delisted in the United States because of a disagreement between the U.S. authorities and the Chinese authorities. You know, they finally reached an agreement allowing accounting firms, Chinese accounting firms, to share certain information with American regulators about the finances of Chinese listed companies. It seems to be a, a done deal. We'll see whether it's a done deal, but it may avoid some really draconian consequences for these Chinese listed companies in the U.S. and the financial markets in the U.S. We have with us two people who are uniquely qualified to discuss this recent development. We have with us two of our partners, Sarah Heaton Concanon, who is a partner in our Washington, D.C. office. She's co-chair of our firm's SEC practice. She joined our firm in November 2021 after five years at the SEC as a senior trial counsel and senior counsel to the co-directors of enforcement. She was a member of the SEC's cross-border enforcement group and liaison with the Office of International Affairs and with particular focus on the People's Republic of China, Canada, and Switzerland. She was actually involved in negotiations and discussions with the SEC, the accounting authorities in Congress on the U.S. side and on the Chinese side, the China Securities Regulatory Commission and the Ministry of Finance, which were the precursors to the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. She presently represents certain Chinese-based issuers in litigation and government enforcement actions in the United States. So this is something that she has been tracking for years. Xiao Lu, who is also with us, is a partner of our firm and co-managing partner of Quinn Emanuel's Shanghai office and the firm's chair of our China practice. He's a Chinese lawyer trained as a U.S. litigator, a very unique background and position. He has a unique practice focusing on representing Chinese-based companies and individuals in litigation and government enforcement actions in the United States and advising multinational companies in internal investigations and enforcement matters relating to anti-corruption, particularly the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and other compliance issues in Asia. So Sarah, let's begin with you. Yesterday, we had this announcement that finally there seems to be some agreement between the authorities in the US and the authorities in China about getting access to accounting information related to public companies in China. I mean, what, what basically has been agreed to now? So the announcement yesterday was a statement of protocol between the PCOB, so the Public Accounting Oversight Board in the United States, and the CSRC and the MOF in order to provide the PCAOB with the ability to conduct inspections examinations on the ground in Hong Kong. So basically what has happened over the course of the last several years is because of a number of Chinese privacy statutes, security statutes that Zhao can describe in considerably more detail, it has been impossible for the SEC and the PCOB to conduct its routine examinations of auditors in uh, those countries. And because of that, as part of the, the usual processes that the SEC and PCOB use to look at cross-listed issuers, 
they haven't been able to get access to audit work papers. They haven't been able to get access to audit information. And it has resulted in a situation where these cross-listed U.S. companies are not um, subject to the same level of transparency in the U.S. markets as U.S. listed companies. They've been working for some time because what we have here is essentially two sovereign nations with different goals and different objectives and the interests of their own citizens in mind. They've been working to try to figure out what is a compromise, what is a cooperative channel by virtue of giving the Chinese issuers access to the U.S. markets, but also ensuring that U.S. investors are getting the information. So the, the deal struck yesterday, um, and as Chair Gensler has said a number of times, the proof is going to be in the pudding, um, but the deal struck yesterday enables the PCOB to have its inspectors on the ground in Hong Kong as early as the middle of next month, so September, to conduct examinations. And the way this is structured, as reported by the US authorities, and Zhao will speak a little bit to some of the different reporting in China, um, but as reported by the US regulators, the way this is structured, PCOB has unfettered choice in terms of which audits it's going to inspect. Um, it can have unfettered access to the audit work papers. They are not to be redacted, which has been a thorny issue over the years. To the extent they contain personally identifiable information, a relatively small subset, then they'll be able to inspect essentially on a computer without retaining the records. Let, also, let, let, let me stop you just for a minute. I think we probably all our listeners know what the SEC is. What is the PCAOB and what, what is its role? So the PCAOB is essentially the oversight agency or, or self-regulatory agency for auditors. So the PCOB has similar responsibilities with respect to auditors as what the, the SEC has for a whole variety of other uh, issuers, auditors, funds, everything that's within the SEC's ambit. PCOB reports up to the SEC, um, but the PCOB's authority over auditors includes the ability to conduct in examinations, inspections, and also to bring enforcement actions. Okay. So, okay. For example, if they were to find something during one of these Hong Kong inspections, it theoretically could give rise to a PCOB enforcement action. It could also give rise to an SEC enforcement action because one of the things agreed to at least in principle, is that the PCOB will have the ability to share audit work papers, any other information it obtains through these exams with the SEC in the regular course. So, so are, you, are you telling us that the deal is that U.S. regulators are going to get on airplanes, fly to Hong Kong, and go through the work accounting work papers of Chinese companies that are listed in the U.S.? Is that what you're telling us? That's the plan. Um, and as you said, there are 200 of them. And the deadline really is November. And obviously, they're not going to be going through all 200. They're going to be making some um, very tailored uh, decisions on who they want first. I would imagine that they're going to start with companies that are already the potential subjects of, of inquiries, enforcement actions, and you know, concerns have been raised that they want to follow up on. 
and they may start with companies where the impediments that have been thrown up over the last several years to conducting those examinations have been the greatest um, to try to get a, a leg up on all the information that they haven't been able to obtain over the last several years. Well, aren't the auditors basically the Chinese affiliates of the big four? I mean, this is Price Waterhouse. These are well-known, you know, known in the West names who we all rely on. I mean, I, I don't understand what the issue is here. The fact that there happens to be a Chinese affiliate that somehow that, that these global accounting firms who we all rely on, that their work done in China is suspect. I mean, you're formerly with the SEC. I mean, you don't speak for the SEC anymore, but I don't know. Uh, why is it because it, this is arising in the context in a Chinese context that we got to have these special rules? Yeah, I'll, I'll let Zhao take that one. <laughs> Yeah, if I could just add to this, and I was going to ask you, Xiao, isn't this just seem like another example of the U.S. picking on Chinese companies and trying to make life difficult for emergent, primarily, I assume, tech companies, you know, who are on the way potentially to being world leaders? I mean, this this could be seen as another example of American xenophobia. I'll just put put all that in your lap, Xiao. No, no, sure, John. There are people in China making very similar comments as those that you just made uh, just now. Uh, but I guess from my perspective, unfortunately, uh, the history isn't consistent uh, with that rhetoric uh, because the issue hasn't really just come up in the recent couple of years. It actually has been on the horizon for over a decade now. And that's why I also thought you were touching on a very important topic about which companies' auditors' working papers should be subject to investigation and why the U.S. now are focusing on uh, firms even like the big four audit firms, which supposedly are, are not the usual suspects in, in any kind of enforcement actions. It's not really a special treatment given the history of this issue, but basically my understanding is that the PCAOB has had similar agreements with a couple dozen jurisdictions they have had unfettered access to the big force working papers in many other countries. So they probably would argue that it's the China situation that has been a special situation where they couldn't get access to what they normally would have in order to give them comfort in the quality, completeness, trustworthiness of these big force uh, working papers. Obviously not just big four, but including the big four. It actually all goes back to 2011, over 10 years ago, when the SEC was trying to conduct an investigation into a Chinese issuer listed in the U.S. named Longtop. Uh, Deloitte used to be uh, one of the big four, used to be uh, the auditor for Longtop and resigned because issues that they identified in the financials of the Chinese issuer. And the SEC, when they started an investigation, obviously was most curious as to what really Deloitte found to have forced them to really resign as the company's external auditor. But to the SEC's surprise, the Lloyd said, no, we cannot hand over any of our working papers done during the course of the audit for this Chinese company because we are prohibited by Chinese law, especially Chinese state secrets law, from disclosing such information and the materials. And the entity that made the representation to the SEC was the Deloitte affiliate in Shanghai, which are subject to all the Chinese laws restrictions. So this is more than 10 years ago. And there was a back, uh, back and forth process that lasted several years when the SEC tried to force 
not just Deloitte, but also other big four companies to turn over uh, working papers and all big four stand it together, presenting a united defense, basically saying, we want to, we're happy to, we have all these working papers ready, but we just can't because of Chinese law restrictions. And the SEC didn't really believe that and really pressure tested it through multiple channels. The SEC filed a administrative charge against these big four, uh, essentially alleging that they violated the Sarbanes-Oxley Act by failing to turn over uh, their working papers. The SEC also tried to enforce their subpoenas through the federal district court, uh, which where the judge also supported the SEC in their efforts in trying to get these materials, essentially saying that even though there seemed to be a conflict of law, on the one hand, you have Chinese law supposedly prohibiting these audit firms from devouring these materials. That's actually one thing I want to come back later. On the other hand, you have the U.S. law uh, where these audit firms do have the obligation uh, to turn over these materials. Uh, and the U.S., the SEC's administrative judge and also the federal court judge both resolved the matter in favor of the SEC, essentially saying that, well, that's not really a valid defense. We can't just have audit firms cite national security laws of other jurisdictions in denying the SEC access. Well, I, I, on the face of it, I mean, it does raise some questions. I mean, you're you're auditing firms which are you know, public companies, public investors listed on U.S. exchanges. People are going to rely on the audit reports and the financial statements. Uh, these are mostly, I would assume, these 200 companies are mostly kind of garden variety companies, businesses not involved in, you know, things that you would associate necessarily with uh, national security. Exactly. Uh, and, and how is it that, I mean, it seems, on, facially, it seems kind of strange that the law there would be, no, you can't look at the audit papers of these 200 public companies for reasons of national security. Can you give us some insight into the perspective behind that? Yeah, sure. That's a very interesting topic and, and something that we actually have to deal with almost on a daily basis uh, when Sarah and I and other partners at the firm represent Chinese companies, especially Chinese issuers in SEC and DOJ investigations. We have to walk through that, well, we have navigated through that, that issue all the time. So I think there are different perspectives coming from different audiences uh, regarding this issue. For the Speak Four, which are known to be pretty conservative in interpreting um, generally any laws restrictions. Chinese law obviously uh, was has been designed to be very broad. It's very easy to interpret something to be covered by Chinese state secrets laws, while on the other hand, it's very hard to get any assurances that something is not. So the what these audit firms, I understand, were trying to find assurances from their legal counsel, perhaps from the Chinese authorities, that what they have absolutely does not implicate Chinese state secrets because the consequence of turning over Chinese state secrets is re really dire, including criminal charges, uh, prison terms for individuals involved. And they couldn't get that kind of assurances. On the other hand, the Chinese authorities, I understand obviously they have a an, strong interest in enforcing the state secrets laws and also personal privacy protection laws. But at the same time, what they really care about, as has been made known through the Chinese authorities public statements uh, regarding these agreements with US authorities is that first, they really care about the 
mega uh, Chinese state-owned companies whose shares are also listed in the U.S. China Telecom, uh, PetroChina, uh, Sinopec, those giant companies whose financials themselves uh, would be vital to China's economy. Uh, and also the big tech companies, uh, the Alibabas of the world, John, as you noted, because they host so much data about individual consumers and companies in China. And what Chinese authorities are really concerned from the perspective of Chinese state secrets law is that kind of vast data regarding day-to-day -day operations of Chinese individuals and companies uh, getting accessed by US authorities. Uh, but that is really not the case, as the Chinese authorities has recently stated. What the US authorities wanted to get access to are the audit working papers. So your accounting books, not your day-to-day -day operation data. For example, if you have a company- It, it, took, it took 10 years to straighten that out? <laughs> More I mean, than that, <laughs> in, uh, so in 2015 and 2016, uh, the saga between the big four and the SEC came to uh, a, a climax where the SEC basically got an order uh, that unless these big four companies were to turn over their working papers right away, they face a half year ban from auditing any US listed companies, these Chinese affiliates of the big four, which means all these Chinese companies who relied on the big four Chinese affiliates would lose their external auditors right away and for at least half a year. So that really couldn't be resolved without much consequence to the U.S. capital market and, and the Chinese issuers. And uh, the, the regulators of both countries actually reached a deal around the same time. And I understand, and this is publicly reported as well, the Chinese CSRC had started allowing the big four to turn over some of their working papers, but there were a lot of strings attached. Uh, there were documents that were withheld from that production for state secrets reasons. The CSRC did have uh, its own uh, trusted law firm go through all the documents that Big Four wanted to turn over to make sure those did not uh, contain state secrets. Was this basically a misunderstanding? Would you say that there was a concern that private data, all this information that Alibaba, for example, collects on Chinese consumers, that these audit work papers would include somehow access to all this information and that that from the Chinese perspective is what they were worried about. But in fact, that's not what the auditors needed at all. Was it that kind of a fundamental misunderstanding? I'll just cite one sentence, but before turning over to, to Sarah uh, from the the CSRC, the Chinese security regulators recent statement about the, the agreement that has just been brokered. Uh, the CSRC thought it to be necessary to include this sentence in their statement, which I understand is to the Chinese audience, really. Uh, it, so the CSRC specifically said, what is being covered by the agreement are the working papers of these audit firms. And normally, these working papers only contain information relating to the accuracy of financial information. So generally, they would not contain anything like state secrets, personal privacy, or the underlying operating data for these enterprises who are being audited. So they wanted to put that in the record. Sarah, that's not really a surprise, is it? Well, it's not a surprise, but this is why it's going to be so interesting to see how this plays out over the next several months. It sounds like a minor point, but the no redactions portion of this agreement is huge for precisely this reason. Because as Zhao says, 
there's been a process at least over the last year or so where the CSRC, its trusted law firm have gone through records and then made them available, but that's with a heavily redacted format and a heavily vetted format. Um, the other pieces of this that are very interesting are the selection mechanism, because again, as Zhao says, Yes, one would think that what the Chinese government is really interested in are these significant state-owned enterprises, but in practice, there can be a much broader swath of companies that the Chinese government views as really integral to the economic system. As soon as the PCOB comes up with its wish list of here's who we want to go look at, and it's really all about the issuers, it has very little to do about the auditors. It's they want to know what do the issuers audit work, work papers look like. Um, there may end up being pushback by the CSRC and the MOF when they discover what are the companies that the PCOB actually intends to move forward on. And then the other piece is my understanding, and Zhao, let me know if I'm wrong, is that the Chinese government is reporting this as a cooperative inspection mechanism so that they will have a right to attend and participate in some way in these PCOB inspections. Um, the US press is certainly not mentioning that and there does not still, after all these negotiations all this time, there does not seem to be a meeting of the mind between the SEC, PCOB, CSRC and MOF about who exactly is going to be sitting in the room with the PCOB as they conduct these inspections, and particularly for the documents where they're supposed to review but not retain, who's setting the parameters of that in real time. Um, and then one final thing I wanted to, to mention, I mean, Zhao mentioned that these types of statements of protocol are quite typical. Um, there are 50 or so that the PCOB has with an, a number of different countries. The chief difference here, though, is that they are not going into China to inspect. They are going into Hong Kong to inspect, and the big four or the China-based auditors are going to be making the books and records available in Hong Kong to the PCOB. So it is still not a standard inspection where the PCOB is able to go on-site and essentially walk around a building, open up files, and so it's not the same exact process that they're used to having in other countries. And the question will be whether in actual practice they find this acceptable or whether they think that their hands are too tied and that there are still significant impediments to conducting those inspections. Oh, so there will be some special treatment for these Chinese issuers. It sounds that way to me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, so, uh, well, the these Chinese issuers have typically tapped the Hong Kong-based affiliates of the big four anyway, allowing inspections of uh, at these Hong Kong-based big four affiliates essentially provides access to PCAOB uh, of their, their working papers and personnel who are participating in the audits of these Chinese issuers. Uh, one thing uh, that Sarah and, and, and uh, Zhang, you alluded to, which is actually kind of my hobby, which is reading different parties public descriptions of the agreement they reached. I mean, I, I, I guess it's not atypical for a Sino-US relationship only. Uh, it, whenever something comes out, you see different stakeholders taking their own spin, focusing on what they wanted to highlight uh, from that agreement. And here, it was particularly interesting. Yesterday, I saw some of my friends making comments uh, on the internet that uh, if you were 
reading the Chinese interpretation and, and U.S. regulators' interpretation, you would imagine that they're talking about totally different agreements. I read through them very carefully. I think there's a way to actually reconcile uh, what they were with both countries regulators wanted to focus on. For example, Sarah mentioned uh, the PCOB and I imagine the SEC also uh, were very focused on having unfettered discretion in deciding which Chinese issuers working papers they wanted to inspect. And on the China side, the, the Chinese announcement was silent about that, but they focused on that whatever the US regulators decide to inspect, they have to communicate that in advance to the Chinese authority. So that formality really means a lot to the Chinese authorities that so from the Chinese authorities perspective, we are respected. It's not like the PCOB would arrive on the ground and then suddenly says, well, we're going to inspect these one dozen, uh, two dozen uh, Chinese issuers working papers. They have to let the Chinese authorities know in advance, even though they would not heed any inputs or objections from the Chinese authorities. And at the same time, they mentioned having direct, the US authorities focus on having direct access to interview and taking testimony from personnel. Uh, and the Chinese authorities emphasized that the Chinese authorities would participate and assist uh, the, uh, the interviews and, and testimony. It's not really contradictory to each other, right? So the US would say, we have to be able to hear directly from the witnesses before there were discussions actually where the US side would only get to propose questions and the Chinese authorities would go in and take the te testimony, pass it on to uh, the US side. Now the US side is getting direct testimony, uh, but the Chinese side is emphasizing that, well, it can't really happen without our supervision or without our participation. At least we we'll want someone to be sitting in the room where this happens. Again, formality really matters for the Chinese authorities in terms of sovereign, uh, well, as a sovereign nation, judicial sovereignty. In terms of uh, getting direct access without redaction, uh, as Sarah mentioned, that's an, an, a hot topic and, and key priority for the US authorities. The China side only said, well, for the particularly sensitive information, including personal information, there's a specifically designated channel and process for getting that. So basically, we have put in some special procedure for particularly sensitive information. And that procedure, as we understood from the USI's announcement, is that certain documents are for view only. The PCOB cannot take away those documents, but they can look at those documents. They can also take notes, and th those notes can form the basis of their further actions. So again, China is saying, well, we need special protection for certain types of information, and we got it. And for the US, they did get direct access, unfettered access without redaction. So that's actually how I reconcile both parties' descriptions. And, and you can clearly see what their focuses are. Right. I mean, do we think that this process and having access to this information in Hong Kong, whether view only or otherwise, is going to have impact on securities regulation, either private securities litigation or litigation brought by the SEC or other regulatory bodies? in terms of access to information? I mean, will it have some impact on discovery and sharing of information? I think it will. And that's because on the government enforcement side, as a practical matter, there's been less enforcement activity stemming from investigations into China-based issuers over the last several years as they've tried to work through this particular information sharing problem. 
And so you might ask, why does it matter? We're just talking about audit work papers, but as a practical matter, when you're talking about an potential enforcement action for any sort of disclosure violation, audit or um, accounting fraud, anything to do with the books and records of the company, a huge amount of the information that the SEC and PCOB use in order to determine whether there has been a violation of law comes out of those audit work papers and comes out of doing an examination of the auditor about their process, what they found, how they reached the various conclusions that they reached. So what I would expect to happen is that over the course of the next couple months, the PCAOB will go in, it's gonna go in with a short list of companies that were already kind of front of mind in the enforcement space, and that they will quickly try to move through those audit work papers, which may very well be the last piece of information that the SEC was waiting for in order to be able to make a determination whether to make a recommendation to the commission to bring an action. Because of the sharing that's allowed for under the statement of protocol, PCOB can immediately provide those documents to the enforcement, SEC enforcement investigative team, and they can start putting together complaints, making charging recommendations, bringing actions. On the private enforcement side or, or private litigation side, whether this is going to lead to an uptick in securities class actions, that type of thing, probably um, not because this provides a private litigant any greater access to information than they had previously, but because so many of those putative class actions are based on following along with what the SEC is charging and essentially filing Me Too complaints with very similar allegations, very similar proof. And of course, once the SEC publicly litigates something, their entire documentary record is out there for all to, to see and, and make claims based on. Um, so I think it's it's definitely going to increase. I do think there's a potential positive for our clients, though, which is this also gets them out of a pretty nasty catch-22 that they've been in for a while, which is you on the issuer side can be sitting there with you know a subpoena request from the SEC saying, please hand over your books and records and all of your files and want very much to comply and basically have no mechanism to do so because you're caught between your obligations as a U.S. cross-listed company and your obligations as a China-based, you know, physically in China with all of the full panoply of criminal remedies for violations of China right. Chinese law. And so this gives them a, a way of basically choosing an auditor who they know can comply with the statement of protocol and making sure that they are working with one of the auditors who is going to do their very best to comply with these provisions. They can be in a much more cooperative posture and they can try to find off ramps that will prevent the SEC from actually bringing these enforcement actions, which really for the last several years has not been something that's been available to them because of the, the situation and the tensions between the laws of the two countries. China's not unique in, in, in having statutes that bar sharing of certain information. There are other countries, Western countries, France, I know, for example, has a blocking statute about uh, sharing certain documents, maybe document discovery generally. So we live with those things uh, in litigation somehow, but I guess this is kind of unique because of the regulatory repercussions for companies. But Xiao, the Chinese government must have wanted to reach a deal here, which I find curious because 
we know that a lot of a number of Chinese issuers have uh, decamped from the the New York public exchanges and have gone to Hong Kong, listed in Hong Kong or or Shanghai. Uh, but it must have been important on some level. Maybe this isn't a legal question; it's more a financial question. On some level, that these companies continue to have the ability to be listed in the U.S. Do you, do you have any insights into why that might be? I have some thoughts about why China is now comfortable uh, with allowing access by the PCAOB and SEC to working papers of these audit firms for the Chinese issuers, given everything that they care so much about in past decade or so. One is that China has adopted a series of uh, state secrets laws, personal privacy laws, cybersecurity laws, some of which Zhang, we talked about on an, an earlier podcast with Haiyan. And one of them, uh, which we did not specifically touch on because it, it was just recently rolled out, is a set of proposed rules for regulating how Chinese issuers are supposed to protect their confidential uh, and private information uh, when they go public uh, in an overseas uh, market. So essentially, uh, through that proposed role, the Chinese authorities are telling the companies who are listed overseas or are seeking an IPO, initial public offering, in a foreign country, they have to carefully manage uh, their information, including state secrets, personal private information, including making sure that they those do not end up in the hands of the auditor's working papers. They're not reflected in the auditor's working papers if those are so sensitive uh, that they needed special protection. So that really cuts the problem at its root. The Chinese authorities are accepting, apparently, that the U.S. authorities would ultimately, perhaps even soon, get access to the working papers of these auditors. And in order to alleviate the concern that some of the, of the state secret information or personally private information of the vast consumer number of consumers would end up being accessed by the U.S. authorities, they are not allowing these Chinese companies to have those information in the working papers of these auditors. So, so that the Chinese government supposedly doesn't have to worry about those working papers that much anymore. And one other thing that Zhang Yu alluded to is that I, I also mentioned the Chinese government is particularly concerned about some of the giant Chinese state-owned companies and their financials, uh, their working papers getting revealed uh, to the U.S. authorities, not because of the stuff that they are obligated to disclose anyway, but they are concerned about uh, the specific operating data if they happen to be in the working papers getting access by the U.S. government. That's why you have seen, I suppose, uh, no one has said there's a causal link, but I, I think we can interpret that in the same way that a lot of Chinese state-owned companies, those giant state-owned state enterprises, are exiting the U.S. capital market. In early, in early August, five Chinese state-owned companies, including Sinopec, PetroChina, uh, China Life, the, the biggest of the large state-owned companies, simultaneously uh, decided to withdraw from the U.S. market thereby no longer subjecting themselves and their auditors' working papers to the supervision of the U.S. authorities. That, at the same time, I understand, also alleviate the Chinese government's pressure in trying to protect the secret information regarding those state-owned companies because they are no longer listed in, in the U.S. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, so I mean, just to wrap up, uh, this is a dispute that's been uh, brewing for many, many years. It was coming to a head and facing 
the Chinese publicly listed companies, some 200 companies were facing the prospect that they might be delisted in the United States. The authorities in the US and China have finally seemingly reached an agreement about getting access to these audit work papers. And so what's the next step? We're gonna see how this plays out. We're gonna see how this plays out. And if they're satisfied in this initial wave, we'll keep moving forward with these companies having access to the US markets. If they're not satisfied, I think you're gonna see another wave of non-compliant come out in December, which is going to be the second step toward companies being delisted now in 2024, which is when the uh, three-year time period is up. From what I heard you say, there's a prospect that, you know, the U.S. authorities have been kind of blocked from being able to finish their work in investigating these companies. They're finally going to see the audit papers, and it's, I got to assume it's not going to be viewed as a really good thing if immediately there's like five or six enforcement actions started against these companies. Yeah, I'll leave that one to Zhao, but I suspect <laughs> that wouldn't be well received. Sarah also mentioned that actually a lot of our clients that we're representing before the SEC in particular, they are trying hard to comply with an SEC subpoena. They will want to cooperate with the investigation, but they're caught between a rock and a hard place. Right. Uh, simply getting documents through uh, under the, the China, U.S., and especially Chinese law regimes, having to go through the CSRC uh, yeah. has been a pain, really. Uh, hopefully, this would actually breathe a sign of relief if they actually can, if the agreement does make the transfer of documents uh, slightly more productive and efficient. Uh, I, although, I, I do have a question for Sarah, if I may. I understand the PCLB's designation is by country or by jurisdiction, uh, and you did mention that Chinese companies would benefit from selecting an audit firm that can uh, do, uh, commit their best efforts in, in producing their working papers to the PCLB and SEC. So supposedly the PCLB comes in and starts conducting inspections, I imagine, uh, regarding various audit firms. If some of them, if three of the big four comply uh, in good faith and to the satisfaction of the PCAOB, and there's one that's holding everyone back uh, that has been really uh, uh, providing lackluster uh, cooperation with the inspection, would that still cause the PCOB to determine that China as a jurisdiction uh, is not qualified for the PCOB's needed access to auditors there and thereby still forcing these Chinese companies to get listed under the Holding Foreign Companies uh, Accountable Act? I suspect under that hypothetical, there would be a push toward the three that were participating in the statement of protocol and a, a heavy-handed suggestion that issuers stop doing business with the fourth, which is similar to the impact of the, the 2011 Longtop and, and Deloitte auditor case that you mentioned earlier, where because of that potential six-month bar, there was a push toward kind of mid-market China-based auditors. So there will always be an auditor. The question is whether it's an auditor that the U.S. government is willing to accept. Well, we'll see how this plays out. This has been very interesting. We've been talking to Sarah Heaton-Concannon and Xiao Lu, my partners at Quinn Emanuel. Thank you very much for joining us. You've been listening to Law Disrupted with me, John Quinn. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, lawdisrupted.fm. 
If you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media and follow at JBQ Law or at Quinn Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Thank you.